You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 2, Episode 8. Hi, I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. Around the world, there are lots of different names for the people who run universities. Presidents, principals, vice chancellors, rectors, and more. There's also various ways of deciding who should get those jobs. Broadly speaking, there are two ways this gets done. In the first, either governments or lay boards of governors select people, hopefully based on merit. And then the second, chief executive officers are elected by some kind of direct or indirect method. But there's an exception, and that's l'Universidad Autonoma Nacional de México, or UNAM. With 350,000 students, UNAM is the largest university in the Americas. And in terms of its place in the Mexican political and cultural scene, it's arguably one of the most important universities in the world. UNAM has its own unique system for choosing a rector. It's not quite an election, but it's not quite a selection either. Sometime in the next week or so, that is before November 17th, the university's junta, which makes the final call on a selection of a chief executive, will announce which of the 10 candidates whose names have been put forward will be put in the top job for the next four years. With me today is Marion Lloyd, a higher education researcher at UNAM. And she's here today to give us a tour of UNAM's electoral system the behind-the-scenes power politics that accompanies the process. And she also handicaps the current race, which is coming to a head in the next week or so. What I found interesting about this interview when I re-listened to it was realizing that while proximately the method of choosing a leader matters, in the bigger picture, the discipline of power and the requirements of running a major research institution lead to choosing similar kinds of people as rectors in any event. But enough from me. Let's hear from Marion. So, Marion, Mexico has a very large higher education system, and yet UNAM, politically, socially, I'm not sure what the word is, it has a very outsized place within that system. And I think it's not just because it's the largest institution in the country. Can you tell us why UNAM is so important in the Mexican higher education system? Sure. I think to understand UNAM, you have to understand that it's a phenomenon throughout Latin America. This idea that you have one main central university that Imanol Ordorica, a colleague of mine, has termed the nation-building university. So it's sort of a different model. It's this idea that you have this one massive university, government-free, open-access university that not only is educating and doing research, but also running the astrological observatory and the volcano observatory and museums. So it plays a role way beyond. There's a, you know, a ton of outreach programs. The government needs help with some major problem, then they turn to the UNAM researchers to help solve it. So the idea is that it has a social mission that goes beyond what we normally think of as the function of a university. And um, what would be another example of that in Latin America? I'm, I'm guessing University of uh, Universidad Buenos Aires. What sure. would be others? Yeah, Buenos Aires is actually the largest university in Latin America because they have completely open access. Anybody who graduates from high school is guaranteed a spot at the university if they want to go. Uh, others would be, for example, the University of the Republic in Uruguay, the University of Chile, uh, the San Marcos in Peru, which is one of the oldest in Latin America, along with the UNAM. So pretty much most of the countries in Latin America have at least one big public university that has an outsized role. And, you know, in addition to producing most of the top government officials, presidents, uh, leading figures in the country, at least until recently when there's been a privatization boom, they also were supposed to weigh in on the major issues facing the nation. 
Now, it's also a, a more democratic system, if I can put it that way, than say we'd be used to in Canada or, or the United States. There's a tradition of elected rectors right across the higher education system. How do rectoral elections work in Mexico and how is UNAM different, if at all? There's actually three ways in which rectors are elected. And actually, the minority are the universities that have elections. And these are kind of elections, not totally direct elections, because you have a percentage come from the students, percentage from the faculty, a percentage from administrators. And that's actually a minority. It's less than a third of the universities, the public universities in Mexico have that system. A majority have an elected council, which has representation from all the parts of the university, who then elect the rector. So it's more similar to the U.S. election process for president, that you have the electoral college and each mm -hmm. state chooses. The UNAM is in the minority in that it has a governing council. It's called the Junta de Gobierno. And the Junta is made up, I mean, honestly, it's very akin to a papal election. You have these 15 notable members of the community who have to be very well respected, typically researchers, research professors, kind of leaders in their individual fields. And these 15 get together and vote among themselves in secret for the rector. We make a joke that the day that they announce the, the result, it's like there's a smoke plume coming out of the administrative building that says, okay, we have a new rector. But it's not a very democratic process. And who selects the junta? Like how do, is it like a self-perpetuating oligarchy? Why do I get to be a, a member of the junta de gobierno? Yeah, many of them are named by the rector. They have a 15-year term limit. If they finish those 15 years, then they have to sit down and the rector gets to choose the new members. But if they step down for some other reason or die or for whatever reason, can't fulfill their 15 years, then the junta itself gets to elect the new members of the junta. So it's a very much self-perpetuating elite, academic elite system. And what do they do when they're not electing the president? Do they just have a function every four years when there's an election or what else are they doing between votes? Yeah, no, they also weigh in on the election, the choosing of the directors of all the institutes. So okay. the UNAM has, has all its schools, which are mostly teaching oriented, and then it has its research institutes. So they weigh in on that. They weigh in on other really top administrative positions in the university. Now, I understand that just before this election process started that the president, AMLO, had made noises about altering the UNAM voting system, if I understand it correctly, to something a little bit more much more democratic, if I can put it this way. It sounded like it was one vote per community member, but it didn't go anywhere. So what was that about? Yeah, I think AMLO very much has this idea. I think most populist leaders feels threatened by the academic elite, doesn't like being questioned. He's actually a graduate of the UNAM. However, I think he's very much in favor. In fact, he wants the Supreme Court to be direct election, which has become very controversial. So he has that idea, partly because his party is so popular that he has this idea of if we can just get the people to elect all the top officials in every kind of agency, then it'll be more democratic. And I think the pushback against that, partly there's a law uh, that's the UNAM has been an autonomous institution since 1945. And so they can't just do that. And then that was strengthened in the recent higher education law several years ago, in which that the idea that nobody can change the UNAM's governing laws without input from the UNAM itself. So it was, it was the president making lots of noise, pushing back against an institution that's been very critical of him, and yet it hasn't gone anywhere because it can't go anywhere unless they change the constitution. Got it. 
Now, what happens when a new rector is elected? Is it an entirely new cabinet leadership? Like, what's the continuity between rectoral regimes? It sounds, how can I put it, wrenching if the entire senior executive just switches every four years and there's no continuity. How do they manage that? I guess if you think in terms of the fact that it is this kind of ruling elite, they tend to choose among themselves. Typically, the person who's chosen as rector is very close to the members of the board. So the people he's going to choose in his new cabinet, it is a totally new cabinet, but he tends to choose people from the same group of people. So there's actually quite a lot of continuity in terms of the same figures in the establishment moving around among different positions. If somebody has been secretary general, then they might go on to be the head lawyer for the UNAM or head of the humanities part or head of the science part. So it's not that they just come in and clean house. And the new positions tend to be the very high-ranking positions. It's not as if they go into every institute and every department and clear ranks all the way down to the lowest levels. Do people run in order to position themselves for being the head of the humanities? Is, is this a way of raising your profile on campus? Most of it is backdoor negotiation. This year has been a very different, interesting process with a, a very high-profile figure who is actually a former student protest leader in the 1980s named Imanol Ordorica, who has basically, his candidacy for, for rector has been as if there were an election. And in fact, last week, he organized a sort of symbolic election in which they only got, they got less than 1% of the entire university to vote, but it was still considered extremely threatening to the administration. And the idea was, we have two questions. One, do you want the UNAM to be a more democratic institution? And of course, 95% of the people who voted said yes. And the other question is, who would you vote for? Imanol won 33% of the vote, I think partly because the people who voted for him were people who were sort of part of that process. And he has been campaigning in every single department, institute, faculty, giving talks, presenting his plan for rector, which is not a typical thing. Basically, because the community has very little say, there's no point in doing that. But I think he's trying to set an example of what could be a different way of choosing the rector. However, yesterday he had his interview with the board, and of course they they actually made a first selection and brought, there were 17 original candidates, and then they cut that back to 10, and he was one of the 10. And there was actually speculation, when would they cut Imanol out of the process? I think very few people think that he'll actually become rector because he's threatening to the status quo. Despite the fact that he's been a high-ranking university administrator, he's been head of institutional assessment for the past almost 20 years, but he hasn't been secretary general. He hasn't been in one of the very, very top positions. And he seems as somebody who's questioning the kind of basic functioning of the university, which is obviously threatening to the status quo. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. 
Just before the break, Marion, you touched on something about the way that election is conducted. And from the outside, when I see these things every four years, they're covered like an election, right? Like when you see in the Mexican press or in the TV, they're covered like elections. There are candidates, they are making presentations. It feels like there's a campaign, there's a horse race aspect to the coverage, if not the actual process itself. So apart from Imanol or Lonica, what does a typical candidate do? to press their case during these two or three months? What's their schedule look like? What are they doing? Again, I think it's very similar to what happens in the Vatican. There are a lot of kind of backdoor wheeling and dealing. The press coverage has to do with the speculation of the same thing with the choosing of a pope, unless you think it's divinely ordained. But there's this kind of idea, do we want somebody who represents the global South? Do we want somebody who represents the old Catholic hard line. So there's a lot of speculation about what type of person would be good for the institution in this particular moment. What the rectors or the candidates themselves do, they cobble together this support from the community, particularly from higher ranking members of the community. For example, research faculty, directors of institutes, and the board holds these meetings and you have to make an appointment and you go in and you have about 15 minutes to make your case of why you think your candidate should be elected. So that's one way that people, and you know, you put together groups of people and you go in and you lobby for your candidate. You can also send letters to the board uh, and they apparently had meetings with more than 20,000 members of the community or something. So sometimes 20 people will go in at once and several people mm -hmm. will talk. But the idea is that they put together these alliances. And so the press is speculating who has a better alliance, who's more convincing, and also who's going to have a better relationship with the government. How important is that? Who would be a better player to continue to help preserve the special status of the UNAM? and keep it from being undermined by whoever's in, in the presidency. And like the Mexican presidency, I understand there's a one-term limit, right? Like I can't run for re-election. Is that correct? No, you can, have, you can run once. So it's yeah. more like the U.S. presidential system. There are two four-year terms. Got it. Okay. Okay. Now, to what extent do these elections reflect wider concerns in society? I know there are certainly parts of the world where democracy on campus is a which really is local political parties who are organizing these kinds of things. I know in India, that's quite an issue. Uh, it's more on the student side than the faculty side. But do people really only focus on issues inside UNAM or do they align themselves to political movements outside the university? Could a candidate get support by being particularly pro or anti-AMLO, for instance? No, absolutely. I think because of the enormous weight of the UNAM, and we have to realize we're talking about almost 400,000 students. There's more than 100,000 high school students 250,000, 280,000 undergrads and graduate students. So it's a massive institution. And I think it, it really is a metaphor for society itself. The UNAM has been at the forefront of major political movements in Mexico, the 68 student uprisings, where probably as many as scores, if not hundreds of students were, were massacred by the army right before the Olympics. I think that the issues at stake in the UNAM, things like violence against women, is a really big issue right now. And how the UNAM deals with that and how a candidate is perceived as having proposals to deal with that are also huge societal issues. The relationship with the president in this particular moment is quite important in the same way that it was when there was the one-party system for 71 years prior to 2000, in the sense that the president has a ton of power. And the current president, his party is expected to get reelected uh, next year. So there's a lot of speculation. Do you want a rector who's going to stand up to the president or do you want a rector who's buddies with the president? 
And I think there's a lot of debate on that, particularly because this current president, Lopez Obrador, has really been attacking the UNAM nonstop for the past at least two and a half years. People are really divided about what the best strategy is. And there's a lot of fear that the federal government will try to weaken the UNAM and take it more into the fold. And there are other people who feel like it would behoove the UNAM to have somebody who was buddies with the president. It could therefore soften the campaign against the institution. Say in the last 20 or 30 years, have there been any really epic contests, ones that have really defined the direction of a university and turned it in a new direction? Because I kind of imagine the one that followed the big student strike in 1999, that, that would have been quite an interesting matchup, I imagine. Absolutely. I think particularly in moments when there was a major student uprising and we had a strike in 1999-2000, it shut down the university for 10 months, was quite violent. And in the end, they ended up sending in the army. And the president basically handpicked who would take over as rector. The idea was that the rector at the time was too weak and wasn't able to handle the situation. So basically handpicked somebody who was very close to the ruling party at the time, who was a member of the community and a very respected academic, but was not chosen by the community. And he was an extremely strong figure, partly because uh, his name was Juan Ramon de la Puente, and he was in power then for two terms. And basically because he was close to the ruling party, and because he had been given this kind of mandate to save the UNAM from, from certain chaos. So I think that was a very epic turn in the university. Another was actually right after the strike that, or right before, sorry, the strike that Imanol led in 1986, 87, there was a kind of coup d'etat because in the early 1980s, Mexico was a major financial debt crisis and the UNAM was a mega financial crisis. And so a member of the community led a coup against the previous rector, who in theory could have been elected for another four-year term, and put together basically a more neoliberal approach to the university. In fact, he even proposed charging tuition, which currently the UNAM is essentially free. And Imanol and a bunch of students got together and led this two-month strike that managed to overturn that proposal and keep the, the system. But I think some of those kind of more neoliberal proposals basically ended up being introduced and changed the character of the university starting in the 1980s. Got it. So what about this year's candidates and campaign? What are the flashpoints? What are the issues? And who are the candidates who you think are, are the front runners right now? It, it's interesting because there's either going to be the old guard, for example, the current secretary general, Lomeli, is considered a major favorite. But then there's a very kind of neoliberal engineer, Sergio Alcocer, who's been a candidate several times who are very kind of strong figures who could take the UNAM forward in a kind of more, this idea of these world-class universities vision. And then there's the argument that we need a woman. There's never been a female rector of the UNAM. So there are currently several candidates. I'm not sure the actual number, maybe four or five female candidates among these 10 that are in the running. However, I, I feel like none of them are a very obvious choice. The current head of the coordinator of the humanities, basically of half the UNAM's research the, all the humanities, social sciences, and arts is one of the candidates, but there's no clear favorite. And so I think it has a lot to do with whether they're going to push for a woman or whether they're going to push for somebody who's going to be continuity in the UNAM or whether they're going to push for somebody who's really going to up the public profile of the UNAM. I think one of the other concerns is that the UNAM has been slipping in the global university rankings for very complex reasons, which have to do with government funding for research and so on. But there's somewhat of a feeling of, oh, gosh, we're being beaten by these powerhouse universities in Brazil and we're being beaten by China and we need to step up our game. 
And then there are other people who feel like, actually, we have to focus on what's happening internally. For example, there's a huge issue about how poorly adjunct professors are treated, like, like there is in, in the United States. So that's another big issue. So it depends on whether we want somebody who's more in the competitive line or a female president or somebody who's going to look more into these social issues. And if you had to guess, sorry, we're having this discussion on the 31st of October. And we are broadcasting on the 9th. We may already have a winner by the time this goes out, but I'm going to put you to it right now. If you had to pick a winner, who is it? Oh, gosh. I think I would probably choose between Lomeli, the, the Secretary General, yeah. who's a neutral figure, or Sergio Alcocer, this kind of star engineer, really international figure. But honestly, it's really, I, if I had to put my money on it right now, I'd put very little money. Got it. Okay. No, so, <laughs> Got so you're it. discounting the, the idea this might be the time for a woman president? I don't. The, probably the strongest candidate among the women is Patricia Davina, who was head of one of UNAM's kind of satellite campuses. But I, I, if I have to say if it's going to be a woman, it'll probably be her. But I think none of the female candidates really stand out to me as a really obvious choice. Sad as that may be. Marion, thanks so much for joining us today. No, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. And it just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pufek, and of course, all of you listeners for joining us. If you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts, please get in touch with us at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest will be Paula Klassing from the Nucleo Milenio de Educación Superior in Chile, and she'll be joining us to talk about Chile's policy of gratuidad 10 years after the re-election of Michelle Bachelet. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production, produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek, hosted by Alex Usher, music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening, and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. 